Joining me on the Anthony Bradley Show is Jeff Hemmer to talk about his book, Man Up. It is what I believe to be one of the best books ever written on this topic. He is the pastor of Bethany Evangelical Lutheran Church in Fairview Heights, Illinois. And his vision, his categories, what he describes will not only be encouraging, but I believe it will be paradigm shifting in terms of how we think about raising sons, how we think about encouraging and empowering men to be the sorts of men that God would have them to be. And I am excited and thrilled to have this conversation, honored to have this conversation with Jeff Hemmer on this episode of The Anthony Bradley Show. Welcome to The Anthony Bradley Show. I am thrilled today to have what I believe, and I'm, I am not saying this as an exaggeration because I teach on this issue. I've read, I can say, skimmed, read, looked at almost every Christian book on, on masculinity that's been written in the last 20 years. And my guest today, uh, Jeff Hemmer, has authored a book titled Man Up, which I believe, I believe to be the best book on masculinity for Christian men in the church today in print. I will go on record saying that this is, if I could rank all of them, this is my, it, this is my number one. It, it bumped my number one book uh, out of that slot. So I'm delighted to have and be joined today uh, by, by Jeffrey Himmer. Uh, he is the pastor of Bethany Evangelical Lutheran Church in Fair Heights, uh, Illinois. He is a cradle Missouri Synod Lutheran. Uh, having completed his undergraduate at Concordia in Wisconsin, also has an MDiv from Concordia in St. Louis, and is currently currently uh, completing a PhD in systematics at Concordia at Theological Seminary in St. Louis as well. Uh, Jeffrey Hemmer, thank you so much for joining us. Anthony, it's great to be with you. Thank Excellent. you for your, your very high words of praise. Well, it's it's well deserved, and I I I believe that this is this is one of the sort of uh, happy accidents that I stumbled upon. That every person I've recommended it to has been excited about it. I think there's no accident on Amazon that it's got, you know, 30 plus reviews. Uh, they're almost all five stars because uh, you did, you did such a, such a good job of, of putting this together. So just uh, frame this for me. I mean, I've, I've been uh, working on, on issues of men in the church for probably 20 plus years, both on the youth side and also the young adult uh, side as well. And I've been, I've been struggling with, watching the church lose a lot of a lot of young guys right sort of out of that sort of that sort of college to early 20s block they sort of fall away seeing lots of marriages early 20s dissolve and i've been concerned about the pipeline right so how did we get there i also teach courses on masculinity and when i assemble you know, sort of stacks of books together for guys, they say things like, why has no one ever told us this stuff before? 
right? Well, why, why have we never heard this? I wish I had this sort of content in, in high school. And so for me, you know, this is this goes back to the late 90s, early, early 2000s. I begin to see guys really falling away and walking away. And I haven't seen any improvement, to be completely honest. I teach at a college that's predominantly uh, women. In fact, almost every Christian college in, in this country is probably 65 to 75% uh, female. And I think, I think the church is feeding us what the, what's happening in, the, in, the, in that broader culture. So, so for me, this is a, a really, really important issue. I'm curious, I'm curious, what, what, what led you to even write this book? What were you seeing? So motivated it for you. I come from a, a complementarian uh, tradition in the church, um, and that is uh, the opposite of, of uh, egalitarianism that says men and women are essentially the same, interchangeable. Uh, if he can do it, she can do it. If she can do it, he can do it. That's uh, egalitarianism. So complementarianism sees distinct roles given by God to men and distinct roles given by God to women, but that, that may have been the theology, but in, in practice, um, I saw a lot of folks in my church body sort of tripping over ourselves to apologize for confessing and teaching the distinction between men and women as being a thing given to us by God and a thing inherently good. So. At the same time, in, in the culture, there was this, this growing movement, um, a sort of fringe movement to be sure, um, but you saw uh, like in 2007, I think it was, or 2008, his book came out, which was my, um, I was ordained in 2007, so just a year into my parish ministry, Brett McKay published his book, Art of Manliness, um, which has since grown up into a, a a very successful blog and podcast. Um, and it struck me as odd that people outside the church were celebrating the differences between men and women, not, not perhaps theologically, not in that same way that, that we inside the church would, but were somehow finding the freedom in our very egalitarian culture to say, men should be men and women should be women and it's good for women to be feminine and it's good for men to be masculine and sort of pressing into the difference between what femininity is for women and what masculinity is for men. And it struck me as odd while within the church, we have people who, who have a complementarian theology who are nevertheless, nevertheless tripping over themselves to apologize that, you know, we don't ordain women to be pastors in our church body, for instance, and apologizing to our young women for that, um, saying, gosh, I'm sorry that you can't be a pastor. You have all these wonderful skills that would have made you a wonderful pastor if only God weren't such a misogynist and put you into this knuckle-dragging, backwards-thinking church body. Um, and that's, no one ever said it quite like that, um, but that was certainly the sentiment being conveyed when we're, when we're apologizing for our complementarian understanding of the roles of men and women. And yet people outside the church are embracing that um, in, in a very 
largely egalitarian society that wants to downplay the differences between men and women and sort of interchange men and women. It doesn't matter that children have a mother and a father. It matters that they have two parents. Well, you even see, you even see a, a pushback against the egalitarian society in something like uh, Barack Obama's fatherhood initiative that was to say, young men need fathers and men who are fathers need to step up to the calling that they have. Well, why, why is that? How, how does that even fly in an egalitarian culture? So I began to, to dig into what masculinity really meant uh, in, in our church body, in the, in the broader church as a whole, and what the Word of God has to say about how men are created to be, and, and then how they're created to be, therefore how they will flourish and find, find their lives best living according to this divine design of masculinity pressed upon them. So that's how, that's how I came into this and did a presentation for uh, like a high school aged youth conference about what masculinity is. And uh, coming home from that conference, my wife said, that was a really, really good presentation. You should see if, uh, if the local Lutheran publishing house needs a book on the topic. Uh, they had just the year before come out with a, a book on biblical femininity and I thought, well, what complements a book on femininity better than a book on masculinity? So uh, it took a little bit of back and forth between me and the publishing house before they finally uh, bit on the idea. Um, but then it came out in 2017 and has been pretty well received since then. That's, that's great. And, and those, those cultural streams uh, I, I, I found fascinating as well that there, there, there has been this sense in which uh, men have been positioned to sort of apologize, right, for for being men, and that in in traditions in in those in those communities where there is a complementary understanding of of the role of of for example, uh, pastor, there has been I think a lot of pressure for people to to sort of constantly be apologizing for men being in positions of authority. As if that's the only thing that men are in the church to do, right? Is to sort of just have authority over 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 women, and so there's there's all sorts of there's all sorts of, of discussions of, right now about sort of fairness, right? Fairness, and then uh, the 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 ways the ways in which right these differences are expressed in the life of the of a local church. And and one 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 of the things I, I've seen, I just I just wrote an an, an article uh, describing how in the U.S. at least over the last 120 years or so, uh, churches exist primarily not just for women but primarily for mothers. And if if you look anthropologically, it's it's the word is matrilineal, and that what we've done post-industrial revolution has really organized churches in this country to serve the needs of mothers. And so it's not, it's not, I, I push back on the idea that it's sort of feminized. I say that it's, 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 it's just really structured, uh, not, you know, to, to, to sort of meet and serve the, the, the nuclear family, which in most American households, and there's good data on this, is controlled by, organized by, led by 
the mother, not the father. And so what churches have done is they basically reposition themselves where most of the ministries of the church, most of the, uh, the program in the church is actually for women and almost run by women for women. And the men are just sitting in the back. Uh, and, and a lot of churches don't know what to do with men. They'll have them, you know, set up chairs, work the parking lot. They work the sound. But what else do you see, you know, men, men doing? What's, what's your sense of the role of men or the place of men uh, in, in the life of maybe not just American Christianity or evangelical Christianity, but maybe even in your circles, if you, if you want to zoom in that closely? How, how are men faring in general, would you say, today? Well, I think men are struggling. I think this is why those, those outside the church are able to publish books about the goodness of masculinity and, and, and they succeed, right? And why there can be these men's movements outside the church because the church has sort of lost her voice in celebrating the distinction between men and women and, and calling men to their roles and women to their roles. So I think, I think that's a very uh, insightful observation that, that the church, in a sense, has culturally catered to mothers. And you probably see that in, in the way we structure our Sunday schools or, or the way in which we treat, you know, a lot of traditions have a, have a children's church, which is kind of like babysitting, uh, so that the adults can go do their thing, and we, we separate the children from the, the worshiping life of the congregation, or we treat youth group as kind of a mom's night out, drop your kids off at the youth group, and you go have some, some margaritas with your friends. Um, and we've lost the, the family nature of the faith where fathers are called to be the the priests, the, the bearers of the prophets, the bearers of the word of God to their family, and the priests, the ones who take their family's concerns and, and intercede to God the Father with their local concerns. So the, the pastor of a household is, in a sense, the father. Well, we've, we've come to understand, and not more than just the last 120 years, you can push back all the way to the time of the Puritans and you have Cotton Mather bemoaning something like a three or four to one ratio of women to men in his local Massachusetts uh, congregation. So it's, it's really as old as our American experiment, this idea that the church is to civilize your children and it's to help tame the wildness out of them or, or something along that nature. And then it's easy to see how that develops into the mentality of uh, a matrilineal role of the church sort of coming alongside mothers and helping them in that task. But we've lost that sort of prophetic and priestly function of maybe of, of the pastoral office um, and, and also of the fatherly office, that this is what fathers are given to do. And when they aren't called to that standard, they're going to go find some other way to fulfill those drives within themselves that, that may be outside the family and certainly outside the church. So you have a lot of people asking the question, why 
why men don't go to church, and the question is really as old as as old as our uh, American experiment, and and nobody has a great answer to it yet, except that when men aren't called to that kind of holy biblical masculinity that would put them back as heads of their families, it would also have them being heads of their families in church. And instead of, you know, dad dropping mom and the kids off for church, it would have dad, you know, walking first into the church with with everyone literally or figuratively following behind him. He's the point man. He's the one who sets the example for what Sunday morning looks like. And that means dad not only takes his family to church, but leads the way into church and then uh, shows how to participate in Sunday morning. I've heard a statistic um, that they used to say the greatest indicator of whether children would practice the faith of their parents was whether dad went to church. I've heard a nuance to that statistic um, that the, the greatest indicator is not whether dad goes to church, but whether dad sings in church. That is to say, whether he opens the hymnal, whether, whether he participates in the liturgy, whether he owns the content of Sunday morning as his own, or whether he's just sort of along for the ride. He'll help, you know, serve as a bookend to the children, mom on one end, dad on the other, but she's the participant and he's just there to keep the kids from being too unruly. That's not a a significant bellwether to determine whether kids will remain in the faith. But if they see dad participating, they see his leadership in the pew as well as in the home, then they will internalize the things of the faith and claim them as their own, as part, this is, this is our lineage, this is what we do. Look, dad sings, so will we. Right, and imagine, right, you're an eight-year-old kid, and you're sitting around, and you're looking at all the men, and, and what are they doing? Nothing. They look completely bored, dead, disconnected, and you're thinking, well, I don't want that. Like, why would I want, why, why would I want that in my future? Right. And so at that very impressionable age, they're thinking, all right, if that's my future, I'm going over here. And so what do you find? Right. I think, I think, you know, when you ask that question, you know, why don't men go to church? I think it's interesting to sort of think about the history. There was a, there was a, a, a change where it happened around the early 19th century or 1830s and 40s where where the church stopped calling men to greatness, right? Uh, and it was really, it was really called men to domestication, mm-hmm. and and really wanted to help them manage this sedentary life as we sort of approach industrialization, and and it it sparked the mass, the the muscular Christianity movement around the early early twentieth century, late late eighteen hundreds. But it, it really started with this idea that that men are to be tamed, mm-hmm. not unleashed, right? Not released uh, to do to sort of sort of right lean in on 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 their on their masculinity. There's a there's a there's a great book by uh, some Jesuits on, on masculine spirituality, and 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 they say that what the world needs is is more masculinity, not less, right? And I, I think I think I think the the church has done a, a poor job of of encouraging that and calling men to to 
to greatness. I mean, men want to go, I mean, you know, we're drawn to things that call us to greatness, right? And so what are they doing? They're listening to Joe Rogan, right? Jordan Peterson. Uh, they may be a red pill guy listening to Rolo Tomasi. Why, why is that? Why listen? Because those men are calling them out to, to greatness. And this is one of the things I, I appreciate the most about your book is that that's, that's what you're doing. You're calling men out uh, to be great, right? To be heroes. I mean, every boy wants to be a hero. You don't have to convince a boy to want to put on a costume and act like a superhero. You don't have to, you don't have to push him into that. He kind of naturally wants, wants to do that. And what we do is we just sort of, right, we kind of tap that out of that, of that boy's natural inclination. And I'm wondering, uh, um, you know, you, you, you define masculinity this way. You say this, that, that, that masculinity is, is harnessing the natural power a man possesses and using it for the good of others around him. I love that definition. It, it fits so well with so many others that I, that I read. And, and then you say this, the essence of masculinity is not rugged independence. It is sacrificial giving. So masculinity is harnessing the natural power a man possesses, using it for the good of others around him. The essence of masculinity is not rugged independence. It's sacrificial giving. I'm wondering what, what made you describe it that way as opposed to defining in terms of like being a good husband or a good employee or fighting off lions or something like that. What, how, how did you come up with that? Well, there's, there's really two, two places to look if you want to know the essence of masculinity. Um, and the first would be all the way back in the garden. In, in the account of creation, God makes Adam, and then from a piece of Adam's side, he makes a helper fit for him. So there's, there's that complementarity, um, that, and helper's, helper's not a bad word. Elsewhere in the scriptures, the Lord himself is called man's helper. Helper means the one who does what man cannot. So that's what Eve is made for. She does what he cannot. And so they're, they're distinctly different and yet both good. God looks at his creation at the end of the sixth day and declares it very good. So there's, there's a goodness to the, the difference between man and women and a goodness to their union together. Only in their coming back together can they fulfill what God has given them to do. And that is to uh, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over creation. So in that, that's given to, to both the man and the woman. And then in Genesis 2, you see the account of man being created, the sort of microcosm, uh, a very uh, microscopic look at that one part of, of day six of creation, zooming in on just God plants a garden, puts the man whom he had created in the middle of the garden, and then God comes to a dilemma. And while Genesis 1 is this refrain of, God saw what he had made, and it was good, it was good, it was good. In Genesis 2, you get this arresting declaration of something that God observes is not good. It is not good for the man to be alone. 
So already uh, the, the MGTOW guys are dead wrong. A man can't be a man going his own way. He can't be a man all by himself. I mean, physically, biologically, of course, he can be a man, but he can't be masculine. He can't fulfill what's, what's printed into his DNA, what's chiseled into the core of his psyche if he's all alone. So what does God do for Adam to solve this predicament? Causes a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and out of a part of the man's side, he makes a helper for him. So then there's, there's the distinction of their roles. And Adam, Adam is head, and his, his wife, whom he'll later ironically name the mother of all the living, uh, is his helper. So then everything's going beautifully for a, a brief shining moment of creation until you get to Genesis 3. And then, and then the wheels fall off completely. And so then, then you almost learn the inverse of real masculinity from what Adam, uh, what he does, which he should not have, and what he fails to do, what he should have. So immediately, you've got Adam failing to do the protecting thing towards his wife when the serpent slinks into the garden and, and wants to have this theological argument with Eve. It should have been Adam right there before the serpent even gets a word out, or after the first word, did God really say, Adam's heel is smashing down on the head of the serpent? Should have happened right there. Well, it takes thousands of years for the new Adam, Christ, to fully crush the head of the serpent, to do what Adam should have done. So first, Adam kind of treats his wife as, as a science experiment to test the, the veracity, the truth of God's word. If she dies then he's only lost his bride, but God's word is true. If she lives, then he loses God, but he maintains his wife. So the stakes are, are cosmically high. And then, so he should have protected her. And as soon as they sin, you see the, the change in, in each of their countenances. So now their eyes incline down to themselves. So Adam goes from being centered on his bride for her good to being centered and fixated on himself. And when God confronts them about their sin, instead of doing the masculine, courageous, sacrificial thing, what does Adam do? He throws his wife under the bus. The woman, and then second, whom you gave to me, she gave to me and I ate. So instead of taking the blame for his wife's sin, which a responsible masculine husband would do, and again, it takes thousands of years to get that one husband who does that correctly, um, he, he's only self-preserving. So you see immediately, sort of in the inverse, how Adam goes from this holy calling of masculinity, it devolves into selfishness. So then the second place to look for the correct example of what masculinity is, is to the perfect man, when the second person of the Trinity, the eternal word of God, takes on flesh and becomes not generically human, but specifically man. In him, then, you have an example of what man should have been, what Adam should have been doing. And if you distill Christ down to his pure essence, what is he about? 
Well, St. Paul says, we preach Christ and him crucified. You can't, have, you can't have the good CEO Jesus or the wise guru Jesus or the model teacher Jesus. You have to have the crucified Jesus. That's, that's the essence of what he's about. And so that in, then you can understand is the clearest example of masculinity that Jesus gives himself completely on the cross. So then you have, if you, if you distill masculinity down to its 200 proof essence, you're, you're, you're left with sacrifice. And then, then you can unpack that into all its various nuances. That's, that's where sacrificial giving comes from. That's what Adam should have done in the garden. That's what Christ does when he redeems Adam's masculinity and also redeems the, the femininity of, of women in, in his church, um, who is herself bride. Um, that's, that's where the essence of masculinity can, can best be understood to be purely about sacrifice. Now, you don't even need to, to use the, the account of creation to make this argument, right? It's historically why men have been the ones to go fight battles, because they are expendable. They, a man throughout his entire life will, well, through most of his life, will continue to produce sperm. He's not born with a, with a fixed number of sperm, um, but he makes them throughout his entire life. And, and his, his most basic biology, um, even, even in that reproductive act, right, man is giving. That's, that's just bearing out the truth of what God has printed upon the heart of every man. He exists to give, and that giving even plays out in that union between husband and wife. He gives she receives. Um, and that's why, historically, um, throughout most of history, in most cultures, women have not been called to those sacrificial roles of fighting to defend the, the fatherland because, because she, is, she has a fixed number of eggs. She is the, her body is the place in which new life is harbored and protected. And so as she protects a growing life within her, she needs someone to fight for her. And so then you see how this sacrificial masculinity plays out in all of what a man is given to do. He is to protect and to provide and to procreate. And oddly, um, secular sociologist David Gilmour in uh, 1984 or 85 um, has a book where he explores all the uh, a, a variety of cultures throughout the world to ask the question, why are men valued? And Gilmore finds that in nearly every culture, he calls them these three P's of masculinity, men are prized for their ability to do these three things, to protect, to provide, and to procreate. That's pure sociology. Gilmore doesn't use any scripture to make that point at all but it, it bears out in the account of creation in what Adam should have been doing. And it bears out in the account of how Christ is redeeming the world by protecting, providing, procreating by means of his church to continue to make all of his saints. And, and I can, I can imagine 
at some egalitarians wondering, well, aren't women called to sacrifice? Why, why, is that, why is that just something that's masculine? Why is that not a feminine attribute as well? I don't see why women would be excluded from sacrificial living. Why is that? Why are, are women just merely passive, just on the receiving side? How would, you, how would you respond to that to folks in your church? Well, I would say selfishness is, is sinful for men and women alike but they will express that in different ways mm. at times. I, I suppose they could express selfishness uh, in, in very identical ways at times. Um, but, but so in uh, 1 Corinthians 6, for instance, Paul has this long list of sins that he will say, you used to be these, but then you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. Well, there's, there's a word in there, uh, malakoi, that is sort of controversially translated. Even in most modern English translations, it just gets joined to the next word, arsenikoitai, and Paul's list of 10 in like the NIV, the ESV, just becomes a list of nine. Um, And you you read in the footnote, it says, this refers to two different participants in the homosexual act. I don't don't think that's what Paul's doing there. Because he's got big sins. So it would be very strange for him to descend down into sort of particular sins that afflict the people of Corinth differently from the rest of the world, right? So um, idolatry, adultery, theft, those are the kinds of big category sins Paul is dealing with um, at the beginning of that list. And so what, what to make of Malachi then? which in the, in the older English translations is translated uh, effeminacy or sometimes softness. But, but what does that really mean? Well, if you look even before Paul, um, Aristotle and some of the peripatetic philosophers who follow in Aristotle's tradition will, will discuss Malachia, softness, as a man, however strong, however courageous he is, a man shirking his call to use himself as an instrument for the good of others, a kind of luxury and self-indulgence whereby he only cares about himself, unwilling to give himself for the good of others. Now, that's a sin for everyone, for men and women alike. Effeminacy, then, in as much as it means selfishness, is a sin for, for all people. And then, and then it's a then it's a first commandment kind of issue. It's it's all the way back to the garden. Adam and Eve wanting to put themselves in the place of God. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. Sounds great, but that's selfishness. That's that's worship of self above sacrifice. And women are are definitely called to sacrificial roles, um, all of which can be distorted by selfishness. But the ways in which they sacrifice are, are distinct from the ways in which a man is called to sacrifice. So I mentioned earlier about the way in which a, a woman's body is, is designed to give life to another human being at great expense to its own. And, and this is a kind of natural coming-of-age event for a woman that, that a boy does not experience in the same way. She goes through this life and death ordeal when her body brings another human being out, out of the womb into the world. And, and that is, that's, that's pure sacrifice, right? So 
for, for her to accept that calling, that holy calling of motherhood is its own pure, godly, feminine, sacrificial role. So I agree, men and women are, are both called to sacrifice, but the sacrifice of masculinity uh, that is distinct to men is the essence of what we mean by pure masculinity is sacrificial giving. That's great. So I want to I want to go back because that this this idea of of effeminacy being more about moral softness than you know sort of being I guess like a woman is is probably how most people see it or or they might they might see it in that in that sort of more homoerotic uh, sort of context in which you described it. I mean that's for a lot of people that that's that's a that's going to be a brand new idea because they've been taught that what it means to be effeminate is for boys to adopt the sort of mannerisms or attributes of women. And you're saying no 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 this is about it's about being moral morally soft right and 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 morally weak. Why why do you think the translation and the association of that? I mean, you mentioned you mentioned the the way it's been translated in the in some of those, those those English Bibles, but I'm wondering, like, how did we get this so wrong? Well, uh, it's still it's still hotly uh, controversial. What what exactly this this Malachia means? And let me just preface the rest of my answer saying, if I'm wrong. Uh, that what Paul means here is is selfishness as a kind of moral softness, then if that's not precisely what he means with this word in 1 Corinthians 6, it's still a sin. And and I can marshal 101 other Bible verses to demonstrate that moral softness and selfishness is a perversion of what God, God calls men and also women to be and to do. Um, but the... Yeah, so when we hear effeminacy, you're right. We, we think a, a boy or a man who sort of acts in a, in a feminine kind of way, has a kind of bodily feminine disposition. But effeminacy and femininity are distinct from one another. So when, when used to describe soldiers, Greek soldiers, fighting in a, in a phalanx, right? He's got his, his shield on his left arm and his sword in his right hand, and, and his shield protects half of his neighbor as well, and only half of himself. Um, and maybe you could even say more of his neighbor to his left than, than himself. So he's fighting with one hand and protecting his neighbor with the other hand. And also then, depending on his brother to his right, to shield him. While, while he wields the sword. If he abdicates that calling and, and runs away or uses his shield to guard himself, he would be accused of being soft, unmanly. And sometimes those words are used interchangeably um, in, in the, the Greek uh, moral philosophers. So Paul, Paul picks up then um, not, th- there will be, and there certainly is in Corinth, there certainly is this, this distorted relationship of, of older, powerful, wealthy men sort of owning or abusing young boys in a pederastic relationship. Um, but 
but for Paul to, to have all these high-level sinful words and then descend down into one thing that seems very unique in Corinth just doesn't fit with, with, the rest, with the rest of what the text is doing there. But if you understand that Paul is, is borrowing... A, now, the second of those words, um, the arsenikoitai, clearly means men who have sex with other men. Um, that is, they have coitus with arson. That's with other men. Um, so there's no, there's no question about what that second word means. But, but before Paul, there's no example of these two words being paired together to refer to the two different participants in, in that sexual act. Later, after Paul, um, and, and even before Paul, there are particular words, if you want to refer to those different participants in that act, that he could have chosen to use. Instead, he lumps both of those together in that arsenikoitai word, um, and so we have to grapple with what he means by malakoi, um, soft men or effeminate men. And, and drawing on that, um, the tradition of the philosophers before him, um, the, the virtue writings of Aristotle and then, and then the peripatetics and, and all those grappling with the idea of, of what is a good man, they would use softness to describe a man who is, who is physically strong, but who refuses to use that strength for the good of others, right? Um, I, I've often been critical of, you know, the guy at the gym um, who's, you know, preening himself in front of the mirror, uh, watching the sweat glisten on his biceps, but who will, who will not use those biceps for anyone other than himself, right? They only exist to, to stroke his own ego. I think, I think men should have strong biceps, strong backs, strong legs, but they, they exist to use in the service of others. So a strong man can still be unmanly. He can be a distortion of true masculinity if his strength only exists to make himself feel better or give him some kind of self-confidence that a man will never feel fulfilled in having. So there's, there's a, a much longer uh, argument about where the, the history of these translations come from. And, and I just think we, do, we definitely do a disservice to the text in any translation when we combine two words into one. If Paul had intended to use one word, he would have used one word. But here you have, in a list of 10 things, um, in, in our, at least in our English translation, separated by commas, we should respect the fact that there are two distinct words there. So the question becomes, what do we do with that first one? We can't lump it in with the second one, which clearly means men who practice homosexuality in, in whatever distorted nature that would be. Um, but what does it mean to be soft then? And here we get insight from, from the virtue philosophers that softness is not physical softness. It's not a physical disposition. It's a softness of character, an internal kind of softness that, that is tantamount to selfishness. So in, in one sense, I, I, think, I think, you know, we've been lazy uh, in, in terms of researching, right, the original context. I mean, one of the rules of translations what did the original hearers understand those words to mean? Right? It's not what the English means in 2020. It's what did Paul's original audience understand those words to mean? You go find that out. 
once you find that out, you can start making translations and applications to the present. And, and I, think, I think the absence of us doing our homework and, and thinking this is just an issue of translation, rather than properly situating those Greek words in their original Greek cultural context, leads us to all sorts of, of, of misunderstandings and, and poor applications. And, and I think, I think what, what's happened is, and tell me what you think of this, right? So you have all these guys who, who are assuming that what it means to be like a strong masculine dude is, right? Six pack, being cut. I'm from, I grew up in Georgia. So it means pickup truck. Uh, it, means, it means going hunting. Right. Right. It means being able to, to sort of handle your liquor. You know what I'm saying? To be able to pull, pull women, as they say, that's what a real guy is. It's, it's, it's this, it's all these externals. And, and, and that's because the, the distinction between being a soft guy and a hard guy, right? Sort of tough guy is just completely distorted. It has more to do with virtue, you're saying, than all, 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 these, all these externals. Is that, is that fair? Exactly, right. And I, I mean, I think men, men are programmed in a way to want to accumulate tools. So whether they're, you know, physical tools, hammers, wrenches, screwdrivers, um, or a truck, or guns, or muscles, all of those things are, they are tools, but a, but a, a wonderful collection of tools is, is useless and not praiseworthy on its own, right? So the truck exists to do work. The, the guns exist as a means to protect or, or provide for one's family. Um, the muscles exist so that you can use yourself capably, competently, courageously and strongly for the good of others. Um, a man should be strong so that he can protect his family. A man should be strong so that he is an asset to his neighbors, right? Whether that's beating up a burglar who comes into your house, standing in the breach there to, to guard wife and children, or just helping the neighbor next door open a jar of pickles, right? Whatever it is, Men produce testosterone in their bodies so that they grow muscles. They, they produce testosterone in a ratio of 10 to 1 over against how much testosterone a woman produces. So across the board, a man will always be stronger than a woman. And it's, it's the exception that proves the rule, right? There will come a point in every boy's life when he is stronger than his mother. And, and it, she will no longer be able to control him by force. Well, that's, that's where this exhortation to virtue and to manliness is intended to control him so that he bridles his passions and he, he starts to implement his strength, not in a, in a selfish, self-serving kind of way, but in a sacrificial kind of way. This, this also, by the way, is why it's essential for him to have a father, because he will outgrow his mother's strength much sooner than he will outgrow his father's strength. And so in, as that transition is playing out, his, his father is called to teach him what good sacrificial Christ-like masculinity should look like. Right, and that's actually the definition of meekness, 
right? Right. I mean, what's meekness? Right. It's hard. It's harnessing the power and strength that you have for the purpose, right? You're 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 withholding it for the purpose of not abusing others, right? But using it to serve others. That that's meekness. It's 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 knowing that you're strong knowing that you have power and you're choosing not to wield it in a way that hurts people. Exactly. You're choosing not to wield it. That's what meekness is. Meekness isn't sitting at home, being, you know, passive, uh, hiding away, being soft-spoken. Uh, it's, it's not withdrawal, right? It's actually, it's actually, a, it, it, it's an active thing that you do uh, so that, so that you control the power that you have uh, so that it, it it contributes to, you know, loving your neighbor and loving God. I mean, that's what that's what weakness is, and and I, th- I think we've gotten that completely distorted as well. We we tell him we tell the high school guys to be meek, like no no no, don't don't be right, don't be aggressive, uh, don't don't challenge things that you believe. Like no no no, go ahead and 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 get in there and get at it, but do it in a in a, in a a way that's virtuous, right? Because at some point you're going to need to fight for your family's X, Y, Z, your family's virtue, your family's physical protection, maybe, you know, right? Financially, you're going to have to, you're going to, have to be, you have to aggressively fight the enemy who's attempting to destroy your family. So, so meekness, you know, has a, has a uh, good, good, good role to play. I want to, is that, does that make sense? The yeah, way, the way I, describe I agree. That? I agree wholeheartedly. Yeah. So I want to, I want to go back to something you said earlier about sort of men having this drive and, 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 and you mentioned this from the sociological research, it was sort of discovered that men are valued useful for their ability to protect and provide and, and procreate. Okay. And what I find is that we don't raise sons in America and I would say even in, in conservative Christian contexts, to think about their futures, maybe they're, maybe, maybe not even the present, but certainly not their futures in those sorts of terms, right? What do we, what do we ask boys when they're little, right? What do you want to be when you grow up? That's the wrong question, right? That's the absolute wrong question, right? So, so, so you're, you're saying that we should be raising boys to think about themselves as protectors and providers, right? And, and procreators. How, how should we do that? I mean, what, 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 what can we do to help boys think about their lives in those, in those terms? And then I want to ask you more of a provocative question, because I think, you know, I think you're right. I think boys naturally want to be those things. And if you just observe them, they just they they will fall in, into those roles uh, uh, anyway. So that that might be more of a more of a follow up if you if you remember to go there. Like how how do you see boys naturally wanting to be protectors and providers? Right. We we certainly see them naturally want to be to be procreators, especially once they hit puberty. That's that's pretty obvious. But but the other two may not be as obvious to uh, to people. Uh, so, so what what can we do to sort of get boys on the on the protector provider train? I think you're right that 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 question, "What do you want to be when you grow up?" is a is a very self centered question, and it expects a man to find fulfillment 
in who he is, what do you want to be, instead of whom he serves. And so a man can do a variety of occupations, which is really what we're asking, what do you want to be? Um, but, but those occupations pale in, in comparisons with the callings that God will lay upon a boy and a man. Those kinds of lifelong callings where, where he is to protect and to provide in a, in a variety of ways. So it plays out when, when a man becomes a husband, he then immediately has someone for whom to provide and someone whom to protect. And when he becomes a father, then that, that calling is magnified. And, and it's, not a, it's not a calling that a man uh, appropriates for himself. He never, he never calls himself a father uh, or decides to be a father. That's a calling that comes only from, from the father himself, the one for whom all fatherhood is named, as St. Paul says. The one who is eternally a father gives that calling to a man when he blesses him with children. So whatever, whatever his occupation is then, it is a means by which he fulfills that higher calling to provide for his wife and children. And, and his essence as a man, his, his gifts as a, as a man, what he brings to that equation that, that a wife and children don't have are the means by which he protects them. And his manly virility is the means by which he participates in that procreative act, even though uh, it's never completely up to him to see whether that succeeds or fails. That always depends upon God. You can say the same about his ability to protect and provide as well. Um, so how do we cultivate that in boys? Maybe, maybe it's not a thing we need to cultivate at all. I think there is in in boyishness, that drive is already there. So I have, uh, we have been blessed with seven children and our little uh, five, soon to be six-year-old is, is the fiercest defender, little boy, of, of his younger sisters that, that you could imagine. No one, has, no one has told him that. I've tried to tell his older siblings you guys need to protect one another, watch out for one another. You're all on the same team, even when you irritate one another. But he just knows that internally. It's, it's visceral for him. Even, even if I'm not, you know, actually hurting his four-year-old sister, if I'm just tickling her or picking on her in some way, right? Dad and, and daughter are playing. He, he will nevertheless if he sees it happening, come to her aid. Um, and in his own mind, he's, he's the strongest man in the house. Um, and he'll flex his muscles and he'll get it right in there in between us. And he will, he will use his body as a means to protect her. I think, it, I think that has to be disciplined out of boys in order for them to lose it. Now they'll all possess it to, to different degrees, but I, I do think that drive exists within boys that that has to be taught out of them as they as they are sort of civilized by our egalitarian society so i think it, i think it comes down to 
boys being able to see fathers and men living out that masculinity. Now, I, I don't mean to say that, that their fathers should always get it right, um, because one of the most courageous things a man can do is, is to confess his shortcomings to his wife, to his children, um, and children should see their, their parents, and especially their father, model repentance, because they're never going to have, God has not chosen to give any children perfect parents. He's not chosen to give any wife a perfect husband. So fathers will, will model the faith for their children, and husbands model the faith for their wives when they are, when they are quick to confess their sins and their shortcomings. Um, and will find their confidence not in themselves, but in the one whose forgiveness restores them to genuine godly masculinity. Yeah, and and so, you know, I I've, I've more recently been thinking about about fatherhood, and, and you mentioned this right. It, it's a vocation, and it, and it's something that that I, you know we would do well at preparing boys to be. Right, sort of preparing them not to just be employees, but how are we also raising our boys to be fathers? Right, how, how are we raising them to, to sort of unlock this desire to protect and, and, and provide and procreate in a way that's distinctly virtuous? Because I think you're absolutely right. They're looking for ways to define what does it mean for me to be a protector and a provider and a procreator, and the internet's giving them all sorts of of information about those things and movies and, and music. Right. And, and, and there are a lot of boys who, who, because the church is teaching them nothing, they're taking signals from those and trying to figure out some way to right square peg round hole, how to fit those into possibly some Christian vision of being an adult rather than thinking more in terms of what does it mean to unlock the things that that you've, you've been talking about. And I think you're right that, that that's a great observation. We may not need to cultivate it. We don't need to grow it. It's already in there. We need to give them opportunities to practice it. Give, give, give boys opportunities. And this is what fathers do as well in a community of men is you give boys opportunities to practice those things so they can be mentored, tutored by the sages to tell them what the boundaries are and how to best use, I think, those natural inclinations. I was reminded as you were talking about that six-year-old boy, I don't know if you remember the story, who stepped in between his sister and this and a German shepherd. Yeah, I saw that. Right? She's four years old, and he got bit up. Right? He got sliced up by the dog. And everyone is you know, naturally celebrating, calling him a hero. And my guess is that a six-year-old, no one had to sit him down and have a two-hour lecture about what it means to be a protector, right? yeah. protector or provider, so even, even a provider of safety. He just did it, right? Because that was his sister, right? And so, and, and so what, what, what happens is I think our culture takes those virtues – and and uh, I, I was gonna use I was gonna use a harsher word, but I'll 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 clean this up. Okay, I'll just say distorts those, 
and invites men to protect the wrong things. Yeah. And, and, and right, invites men to, to care about uh, providing for the wrong reasons. And then invites them to use their procreative power for the wrong reasons. Yeah. And if, unless guys have a very deep center sort of counter narrative, they're done because there's nothing there. They don't have anything more compelling to compete against what the sort of dominant cultural narrative. And like you said, I think, I think the church is on a miserable job of, of cultivating voice uh, uh, to that end. I want to, I want to shift gears for just a moment and, and talk more, more broadly about, uh, some of the other things that you you mentioned in the uh, book, uh, in the context of of, of marriage, I'm, I'm wondering. You know, you 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 mentioned that that men and women have different needs within the context of marriage, and the way in which they negotiate love and respect are are, are very different, right? I, there's a there's a a great great book. Uh, sort of a premarital counseling book called Love and Respect that I, I usually recommend to students. And and it's interesting, I'll, I'll tell them to sort of think about this as kind of an aha moment, right? Paul doesn't tell men to love, sorry, it doesn't, doesn't tell women to love their husbands, he tells them to respect them and calls men to love their their wives. And that for men, respect is a love language, right? This is why men will, this is why men will literally kill someone because they were quote unquote disrespected, right? He, why'd you shoot him? Cause he dissed me. I've never heard a man say I shot him. I got into a fight because he didn't love me. Yeah. Right. He didn't, he didn't tell me he loved me. So I, I stabbed him. No, I felt disrespected. So, so he went after me. So how, how does, how, when you, when you're talking to couples, when you're talking to, sort of premarital context or maybe even doing uh, family counseling, how do you help couples understand the relationship between love and respect and men's needs and, and women's needs? Yeah, well, so Paul, Paul breaks that down in, in Ephesians 5, where he holds up the standard for what a husband is to do in Christ and holds up the standard for what a wife is to do in Christ's bride, the church. So there, there you've got perfect complementarity. There's no egalitarianism in this marriage. He is not she and she is not he. And he does for her and she receives from him. So this, this takes everything back to the Garden of Eden. This is what Adam and Eve should have been. But because Adam and Eve failed, you've got the second Adam, Christ, God in the flesh, and his bride, who is also, just like Eve, Christ's bride is, is created out of his side as well. And so on, on the same day, the same sixth day of the week, God causes the deep sleep of death to fall upon the new Adam, and out of his bride extracts the out of his side extracts the source material for his bride, water and blood, the instruments by which he washes and sanctifies and purifies a bride for himself and presents her to the man. So that's, that's the Holy Week is the week that, that sets the pattern for the week of creation. It's, it's the, the central event of history. 
So then when Paul discusses what, what husbands and wives are to do, it's, it's that, the death of Jesus on the cross for the, for the pure good of his bride that sets the pattern for what husbands are called to do. So many men know by heart um, Ephesians 5.22, wives submit to your husbands uh, as the church submits to Christ. But that's as far as their, their memory work has gone. Um, Paul spends a lot more ink and a lot more time dealing with what husbands are called to do. Um, and, and then, right, then he turns his attention to husbands. Hub, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then unpacks what that giving himself up for her looks like. It means he, of course, it means he dies for her, but it means he purifies her, he sanctifies her, he presents her to himself without any spot or wrinkle or blemish or any such thing. In the same way husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies, nourishing, just as one nourishes and cherishes his own body, so husbands are to do for, for their own wives. Um, and then again, we'll return to. In this way, husbands are to love their wives and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And that's where that husbands love, wives respect language comes from. But so what does it mean then for a husband to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her? Well, that means, maybe it means a man gets the opportunity to take a bullet for his wife. Most of us will never get that opportunity. So if, if we're called to that once-in-a-lifetime big sacrifice, do it. But I think, I think even, even people who, who confess no faith in Christ would be willing to do that, um, right? The boy who puts himself in between his sister and the dog doesn't do so because of his faith. He does so because that's, that's a natural drive of man. So most, most men... Will, will put themselves in between, right? A guy breaks into the bedroom, says, it's you or your wife, who's going to die? Uh, most men will say, take me. So the rest of us who are not called to take a bullet for our wives are nevertheless called every morning to, to deny ourselves, to die to ourselves for the good of our wives, for the good of our children, for the good of, of anyone around us, right? That's, that's the sacrifice of masculinity. And then what does that look like as it plays out? Well, Paul says Christ presents his own bride to himself without spot or wrinkle or blemish. If you ask Christ, what sins does your bride have against you? His answer is nothing. He has no sins. I have her sins. He has taken all of them away. All the sins of the world are laid upon the Lamb of God, and, and he deals with them. When he looks at his bride, he sees no spot, no blemish, nothing for which he can accuse her of any wrongdoing. In the same way, husbands love your wives. Now that, if you want to be the head, if you want that manly leadership role in your household, it means in your marriage, everything is your fault. Whatever she does that's wrong, 
does not become a list of grievances that you just keep tallying them up in your mind. And, and when the, the last straw breaks the camel's back, you come into your pastor and you say, pastor, I've had it. I can't live with this woman anymore. She does this and this and this and this. Um, it means all of her faults are yours and, and you pay for them. If she is yours, then her sins are yours. Now that maybe just because I'm the husband, uh, that seems like a much more difficult calling than, than a wife's calling to submit. If, if her husband is genuinely Christ-like and she knows that nothing will ever be held against her, which is how Christ treats his bride, then submission is safe and natural for her. Well, the problem is there's only one perfect husband and, and all the rest of us are just muddling along, uh, doing a lot more repentance than sacrificial living for our brides. But that's, that's the model that Paul holds up. And it's never, right, husbands, it's never about you. It's never about you not getting your needs met. It's never about you even, even being disrespected, right? If he loves her sacrificially, respect will be natural. Respect and submission will go hand in hand because under his headship is the safest place for her in the world. It's why, it's why in, in a you know, traditional marriage ceremony, a father gives his daughter over to another man. She's transferred from one place of safety under her father's headship into another place of safety where she's actually more unique. She might have been one among many siblings under her father's headship. Now she will be this man's only wife. And that's, that's the calling that Paul lays out for husbands, that your love for your wife must be such that, that under your headship, your wife is safe from every accusation of the world, every accusation of the devil, and every accusation of your own sinful flesh that you would levy against her. She needs to be safe from all of those things. And that's why Paul holds up Christ and his sacrifice as the model for what it means to be a husband. So where, where are boys supposed to learn about this? I mean, it, it seems that, that in order to be a, a properly formed husband ready for that institution, that you've got to, you have to, you know, you sort of have to be tutored on, on that. Where, where are boys supposed to learn that? It's not going to be at school. They're not going to learn it in the typical American youth group culture because they're, they're playing games and, and they're, they're eating pizza and listening to a 10 minute talk about, you know, don't, don't smoke or whatever. How, how, how are guys supposed to know that? I mean, what I, what I typically find is that a lot of guys, young guys go into marriage and they learn that after the fact, 10 years later when they're in counseling. Yeah. Right. So wh- what, what do you, what, what should, where, where should boys be learning this? I think they should be sort of, sort of, you know, sort of on their way to that. I mean, where should, where should teenagers, college age guys, kind of pre-marriage guys be learning those things? Well, there's no, there's no easy fix. Um, we're, we're in a culture that, that has sold us this egalitarian bill of goods. And just as a, as a side note, egalitarianism should never feel safe to a wife 
to a woman. Um, it's not. It means he can hold her sins against her. So where, where should boys learn it? Well, they should be learning it from other men. Men, boys don't have, we mentioned this, this earlier, they don't have a natural coming of age process. What they need, they need older men to initiate them into the, the order of men, to, to bring them through some kind of ordeal that, that should involve a kind of sacrifice, it should involve a kind of trial, um, and it, it should involve some kind of you know, coming to face yourself and your own fears and demons and whatever. And then when you return from this ordeal, the men of the tribe say to you, now you're one of us. This should happen in the church. I mean, that's the way that God has put his church together. Um, segregating people by age is kind of a, a modern John Dewey innovation um, that the church should, should always anathematize. We shouldn't, we shouldn't have like geezer church and, you know, midlife crisis church and 30-something church and teenager church and toddler church, and everyone goes to hang out with people who are just like he or she is, um, because then you won't learn anything, right? But the old men will learn from the young men, and the young men will learn from the old men. This is how Paul lays it out to Timothy. Older women teach the younger women. Older men teach the younger men. So the church is its own kind of tribe where older men should teach in two ways. They should teach both by example, but they should also teach by counterexample. That is, teaching by means of their own failures, telling young men, don't make this mistake. I tried it. It doesn't work. But then they should also say, here's, here's what works right? Here's, here's how to have a happy, thriving marriage. Um, that's, but see, that's not, that's not going to happen overnight. Um, it's going to take a slow glacial pace, cultural transition, where once we've been extolling biblical Christ-like masculinity for a while, men will, will gravitate to the church anew, hopefully, drawn by the Spirit, of course, and they will, they will begin to take up the mantle of, of biblical, Christ-like, manly leadership and present these kinds of courageous examples within the local congregation, even to the young men who are there. And, and I think, sh sure, there can be a time and a place for hanging out with people your own age. The old men can still get together for coffee at Hardee's, and the young men can still get together to play video games but we, we can't stay in those communities. There needs to be a crossing over as well. There needs to be a time when the old men teach the catechism to the young men. The old men open up the scriptures to the young men. The old men teach, teach the young men even, even simple things like changing the oil in your car or learning, learning a trade together, these kinds of things. We've, we've lost those arts as well, and all of our humanity has suffered inside the church and out of it. Absolutely. I have a stack. I have a stack of books by secular psychologists who, who, who are saying the exact same thing, that, that boys are walking around struggling right now because they have not been properly formed by, by 
sages, sort of older men, men their dad's age and older, and that teenagers, especially by the time he becomes a sophomore in high school, needs to be primarily impacted by older guys, not his peers, right? Because we're setting them up for failure, Jeff. We, we, we are sending them to a slaughter by keeping them isolated from the men whose job it is to form them. And, and this model is not working. It hasn't worked. And we send guys out of high school, we send them into college, and then we wonder why they fall away. Because they weren't prepared for adulthood at all. Because we keep them separated from the very communities that are intended to form them. You know, fathers, men in the church, go raise the boys. Right? Now think about this. Now we, we, we both come from traditions that practice uh, infant baptism because that's what the Bible actually teaches. I'll just say that for the record. Right? But, but this, this is what it means for the church to care for its baptized boys. Right? What, what, what else is, is the church supposed to be about as an extension of, of, of a boy's baptism than to properly catechize and prepare this boy to be a virtuous, godly man? And I think, I think and tell me what you think of this. I think one of, one of the problems is that we have individualized this and put all of the responsibility and the pressure on one dad. And I don't think a single dad should feel the pressure or, or, or is necessarily equipped to do all of that formation, which is why the church and the community of forming baptized boys into men is, is, so, is so important. Tell me, tell me what, what you think of that. Do you, do you think there's too much pressure on the one dad, or, or should the one dad do it all? No, I think you're exactly right, that no man, we've, maybe this, uh, problem is even bigger than just the question of, of parenting. But, but in a lot of circles, we've reduced faith to being just this one-on-one relationship with Jesus. And we've lost the, the nature of the church as community. So, so then it is just one man and his responsibility, like channeling Jesus through him alone to, to lead his family and to teach his children. But that's not, that's not how Christ has knit his church together. He's knit his church together to be this communion of saints, we confess in the creeds. This, this tribe where men from all various walks of life are brought into... See, this is, this is the beautiful nature of, of the church, is that she is counter everyone's culture. It is, it is a place where... Old people and young people, rich and poor, black, white, men, women are all brought together and they're all taught a foreign language. They're all taught a foreign culture. There's, there's no such thing as, as like, right, Lutherans often get lampooned for being German um, and, and having our like German communities. And, and maybe we were speaking German in America for, for too long. Uh, and so part of the caricature may be, may be correct, right? But, but the church is not, it's not reduced down to one culture. And it's not like a culture gravitates to a particular way the faith is played out. The, the nature of the church is to be counter everyone's culture. 
And so it brings together, right? It's, it's the new Pentecost. It's the reversal of the curse of Babylon. It's where all nations and tribes and languages are integrated together in, in the church's Sunday morning liturgy. And you've got people who, who don't live on the same street because they don't make the same amount of money or they live in, in different parts of town because their, their skin color is different or they live, you know, one in the, you know, urban setting, one out in the suburbs, and because someone doesn't know, whatever reasons have, have fragmented our society like that are completely broken down, abrogated in the church. And, and here you've got, for men, a community of other men to, to stand behind you and to encourage you for the task that lies before you, in, in teaching the faith to your kids. So you're in the church, you're never alone. You, you may, Monday through Saturday, spend the week, and you should, teaching your children the Word of God, um, teaching them, you know, hymns to learn by heart and, and bits of the catechism to learn by heart. And then when you bring them to church on Sunday, they see other men or should see other men in exactly the same place as their fathers. And just that example encourages them. They see other men singing. They see other men able to, to recite the creeds. They see other men reading and, and digging into the word of God. And just that example is, is a huge bulwark to, to what dad is, is already trying to do or should be trying to do. Oh, and I would, yeah. But, but there, there's encouragement when, when they see this matters to other men too. Absolutely. And I would I would press it even further and say that they don't have to wait until Sunday for that. I think I think even Monday through Saturday, dads can get together with their children and do catechesis and they can and they can transfer wisdom and knowledge on their own together. Yeah. In somebody's house. They can on Saturday get together and and have a cookout and have the kids there. The moms can go do whatever. And then the, the fathers can, can make that a regular event. I personally think that a lot of what we call youth ministry, I think the dad should just take the kids and form them in community with, with other guys. Uh, a friend of mine here in, in New York is a part of a, there's all sorts of men's groups because men are terribly lonely. I want to talk to you about that in just a moment. And, and so, and isolated. And, and once a week, a bunch of dads get together. And by the way, this is not a Christian thing. In New York, there's not Christians. Christians don't do this in New York for some reason, <laughs> right? So the dads get together once a week. This is what they do. The dads pick the kids up from school. The dads all go to one guy's house. They cook a meal together with the kids. They eat with the kids and have a big discussion. Now, to me, it, that, that, to me, that just seems like a natural thing that ought to be a part of church life. And why is it that the, the non-Christians are doing the sorts of formation with that fathers and children that, that Christians don't even do? Right? And I, I, think, I think part of it is, as, as you mentioned, I think, I think men are isolated. And, and one of the things I love about your book is that you, you, you really press in on the fact that men need other men, right? That, 
that this idea that you are on your own to run your marriage and your family, you're by yourself. Like guys need other guys. And guys intuitively know this because that's how we live in school, elementary school, middle school, high school, college. And then for some reason, there is this bizarre understanding that once you get married, you don't need friends anymore. Right. And what I typically see in the life of a church is not just sort of checked out men, but very lonely, disconnected men. One of the questions I ask my uh, every year, I ask a lot of the freshman students at, at the King's College here in New York, I ask them this question. How many of your fathers do you see leaving the house on a regular basis with his friends to go do something? Out of a room of 60, I might get three or four hands up. So if, if, men are, if men are isolated, disconnected from each other, then they can't, they can't work together in the church to sort of do the formation for their children. Because men are, right, on their own. Tell me why you decided to put that in the book. Because I've read a lot of these books, and this idea that men actually need intimate, close friendships with men is not something a lot of these other books talk about, but, but you do. Why, why did you put that in there? Well, uh, two reasons. One, we see this sort of epidemic of loneliness. And that just harkens back to the truth of what God says in Genesis 2, maybe verse 18. It is not good for man to be alone. Masculinity is never intended either to be expressed alone or cultivated alone. So alone, man has no one to give himself to, but alone, apart from a tribe of other men, a man has no one to sort of sharpen his ability to give of himself, right? Like, like the writer of Proverbs says, iron sharpening iron, so one man sharpens another. We all, we all just become exceedingly dull if it's up to each one of us to sharpen ourselves for the task of, of giving of ourselves, using of ourselves to protect, provide, procreate, see ourselves as an instrument for the good of others. So it's all, it's all just part of God's design for creation. And C.S. Lewis breaks, breaks down love into four kinds of loves, where you've got agape, which is the pure sacrificial love God has for mankind. You've got storge, which is familial love, the way a parent always loves children, siblings love one another. You've got eros, which is marital face-to-face love. But then you've got philia, which is often neglected in, in society because, especially for men, uh, there's, there's a fear that Men can't love men. See, when we flatten all those loves down into one, we think if a man loves another man, then he must want to have sex with that man. Love must mean eros. Love must mean that kind of sexual intimacy, which it doesn't, It doesn't. right? There, there's a kind of love between men that's not face-to-face, but rather Lewis describes shoulder-to-shoulder. This is men laboring towards a common goal, facing in the same direction, either against a common enemy 
or towards a, a common goal, a common good. When men fight together in, in trenches, in warfare, there's a bond that develops between them, even though they never look into one another's eyes, right? They're looking towards the objective, towards the goal. When men work side by side, literally or, or figuratively, and there's a common goal or a common enemy, right? Maybe it's, it's workers on an assembly line who all hate the boss the same way, right? It bonds them together when they go have a beer together after work or when they all take the same weekend off to go hunting together or something like that, right? That and even, yeah, and, and even, sorry to interrupt, even when they have the beer, they're side by side at the bar. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. They're, they're still connecting shoulder to shoulder and ladling in and out as they as they drink beer together, but I, I interrupt you. Go go ahead and finish. No, you're, so you're exactly right, and and this is what we've lost. We've lost the, and I think this is why that loneliness exists. And what we are experiencing just testifies to the truth of what God expressed all the way back in Genesis two. It's not good for man to be alone, either because he has no one to live himself in in a manly way for nor does he have anyone to learn masculinity from. And so men, without friends, men are sort of having to invent the wheel and figure it out on their own. And that will inevitably lead to loneliness. It will lead to them feeling isolated. If, right, if masculinity is just about sacrifice and about giving, then all these other relationships will call a man to be giving of himself and there will be no way for him to be filled back up. And, and this tribe of men, men loving other men, is a way for men to be filled up, to be encouraged, to be strengthened so that they can return back to the task of loving, giving, serving, fighting for the good of others. Absolutely. And so, you know, you mentioned in the book, just to wrap up here, that masculinity goes wrong when when men are self-serving and self-centered and self-preserving the opposite of which you focus on on sacrifice and as you mentioned proverbs men are are built up to be sacrificial by other men in order for them not to be self-serving and self-centered and self-preserving is actually the community of men that shapes, cultivates, unlocks, builds up. It's like going to the gym, right? It's, it's sort of like building up the, the muscles that you need so that you can go back to your family and go to work and go, be in the church and be in the community and be self-serving and, 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 and sorry, um, uh, to, be, to, be, to be sacrificial and to be other-centered and to be, you know, sort of uh, concerned about someone else's preservation, which, by the way, is exactly how the military trains people, right? right? You take men... You, you separate them, you train them for the purpose of coming back in to be sacrificial for other people. And the church, multiple uh, traditions, have really, really lost the value of spending specific, unique time sort of training boys, initiating them, as you said, into the expectations and what's needed for, for men to be 
the kind of men that God has actually designed them to be, right? You, you did a great job of, of explaining what that design is. And the extent to which I think churches uh, uh, sort of wake up and, and really lean in on this, I, I personally think all the, the worries we have about the n- numbers declining, right, and, and young people falling, falling away and they go to college, we, we, we blame the colleges, right, because the liberals are there. That's not the college's fault. I mean, are you serious, right? It's the fact that the churches have, have basically done nothing other than entertain these young men and they send them off to be sort of feared on their own to be adults. And so, as you said, they don't know what to do. So they read Jordan Peterson and they listen to Joe Rogan. And then, and then, and then we get mad. Jeffrey Hemmer, thank you. Thank you so much for your time today. This book is absolutely fantastic. I believe that this book is the anecdote nationally, I would argue, to the issues that we're talking about today. This is where it begins. And I would encourage every pastor, every father, every college minister, anyone that works with, with adolescent boys or older to grab this book and figure out a way to begin to change the culture so that we can really turn this thing around and, and, and release uh, into the church and, and into society uh, men who are harnessing their natural power, the natural power they possess, and using it for the good of others uh, sacrificially. Jeffrey Hammer, thanks. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you, Anthony. It's been a real pleasure. And let me, let me just say as a, as a note in closing, we, we've really held up a high ideal of masculinity here. And, and not a single one of your listeners is ever going to live up to even close to that ideal. So not only is Jesus the perfect example of masculinity, but he's also the savior of dirtbags and failures and men who are inclined towards selfishness and men who are striving to be good but keep failing day after day and men who don't find an example in the church and men who are afraid to take on this, this mantle of masculinity. And he will be, as he has been for millennia, he will be the savior of his church, and he will be the savior of us men. And so it's only in his grace that we have the courage to strive toward this ideal of masculinity. Absolutely. And, and the other part of the good news is we read from John 14 to 16, is that the Holy Spirit actually will empower men, give men the ability and the capacity to do the very things the Scriptures teach with respect to their wives and their children. They're not even left to figure out on their own, how do I get the strength to do this? The grace of the third person of the Trinity is also there to do this work. And that's part of the invitation, to lean on every aspect of, 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 of grace, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so that men can be the kind of men that God wants them to be, And which is why the catechesis part is so important, because we want boys to know the extent to which they will need every person of the Trinity to be exactly what it is that God calls them to be, to be Amen. protectors and providers and to procreate in the way in which God God designed and desires. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. It's been a fantastic conversation.